If you are here this morning and you ever wonder why Christians seem to get emotional at times, if you ever wonder why when we sing certain songs that there just seems to be this emotive part of us that just sort of squeezes out our hearts and comes out our eyes, if you ever wonder why you see some people that want to lift their hands up, it's because of songs and because of times just like what we've already gone through this morning. When we truly come to grips with the fact that we were lost and undone apart from the grace and the mercy of Christ. When we really realize that had it not been for Jesus doing for us what he did, that we would remain lost and undone for the rest of eternity. And then when we recognize that he reached down in his love and that He pulled us up and saved us from our sins and gave us something that we could never earn and we could never get for ourselves. That's why we sing songs like, Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. If you want to know why we get excited, really the message... Those last two songs we sang tells you because we have a good, 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 good father who loved us enough to send Jesus to be our savior, to save us from our sins. And that's why we sing. That's why we gather together as people of God to, to lift our voices and to, 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 that's why we sacrifice of our finances and our time and our energy. That's, that's why we pray. That's why we do the things that we do is because God has done something in us that just truly amazes us. And we are undeserving of it. And here's the best news I can, if you're wondering about that, I want you to know this morning is that everything that I've got, and everything that those around you have that have been singing to the top of their lungs this morning have, He offers you too. By His grace and mercy, He offers that same salvation to everyone who will believe. I couldn't have asked for really a better introduction and a better setup to this morning's sermon. And so I'm going to ask if you would to turn in your Bibles once again to the Gospel of Mark. And this time turn to chapter 8. And I say once again, because if you've been with us on this journey, you know that we've been studying through Mark since January of this year. And we're continuing to just... Oh, we're barreling our way through this gospel. I mean, we are just blowing through it. We've taken about seven and a half chapters so far that we've studied. And here's what I want you to know. At the very first verse of Mark's gospel, it is revealed to us that Jesus Christ is the Christ. That Jesus, the Son of God, He is the living Son of the living God and He is the Christ. Nevertheless, what we've been able to look at all through our study thus far is that no one else who was a human being could quite figure that out. For the first seven and a half chapters that we've been studying, no human being ever really was able to come to grips with the fact that Jesus was the Christ. They, they saw what He did. They heard the things that He said. They were able to witness His miracles. They were truly amazed by Him, but they did not understand who He was or what He came to do. In fact, his own disciples were on a boat with him out in the middle of chapter 4, if you remember. They were out in the middle of the sea, and, and the wind picked up, and the waves picked up, and Jesus stood up, and he hushed the sea, and he calmed the wind. And even his very own disciples turned and looked at one another in complete dismay and said, Who can this be? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Who indeed? That really is the question that Mark has been 
forcing upon us in the foreground and in the background of every text that we have studied thus far, that question has been at the center of it. And as we're going to see this morning, it takes center stage yet again in this passage. Here's what I want you to know. When you come to the answer of who is Jesus, and when you come to recognize who He is based upon what the Scriptures claim, it necessitates two follow-up questions. Because one has to begin to understand, well, if He is who He says He is, then, then, then what? If He is the Messiah, what kind of Messiah is He? Because there's a lot of different understandings as it pertains to that. And then the next question that comes from that, and what we've been studying as we've worked our way through this gospel, is a third question, that is, what difference does it make? What difference does it make for you? What difference does it make for me that Jesus is who He is and that He's the kind of Messiah that He is? Well, here's what I want you to know. When we come to our text this morning, we come to what I believe is the pinnacle passage in the Gospel of Mark. This is the Mount Everest that Mark has been pushing us to. And here's the best part. He answers all three of those questions in this text that we're going to read today. Who is Jesus? What kind of Messiah is Jesus? And what that means for you and for me. And so with that as an introduction, let's read our text this morning. We're going to begin reading there in verse 27 of Mark chapter 8. And I'll go all the way down through chapter 9, verse 1. Hear the word of God this morning. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then Jesus strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for this time, and we thank you for this opportunity. We have to open your word. Now we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and guide us and lead us into all truth, because your word is truth, and we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. This text opens with Jesus walking with his disciples and they're walking down the road and they're just having a discussion and they're talking with one another and it's as if Jesus takes his arm and, and he makes an expansive sweep across all of the people and he basically asks his disciples, he said, tell me guys, who do, you, who, do, who do the people out there say that I am? 
And, and the disciples understood this. this they, they began to give him some answers based upon their, their interactions with folks in the marketplace and, and in the synagogues and on the street corners. And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. That's what Herod had said about Jesus, who he thought Jesus was. John the Baptist reincarnated. Some say that you're Elijah, a reincarnated prophet from the Old Testament, or, or some other prophet. Now, and I think it's interesting that, that those are the answers that are given. The divergence of opinion among the, the general populace of people tells us that Jesus had definitely made an impact on society. I mean, they knew something was special about him. They knew based upon his works and upon his teaching that he was a special individual. Their opinions about him was, was they, they put his name in with, with some very prominent people. John the Baptist was a prominent guy. He, he was one who ministered to many people. Elijah was one of the, one of the great Old Testament prophets. For, for Jesus to be lumped into that category meant that they revered him and they understood him. But even so, they did not completely understand him. Their opinions of who Jesus is is a lot like some of the popular opinions that we might come across today. If we were to go to the mall over here, or if we were to go to the break room at where we work, or if we were to interview people up and down our streets, we might come to some of the same kind of answers. You'd likely find that people, when they, they talk about Jesus, they say something along the lines that he was a good man, that, that he taught wonderful things, that he was a loving man who embodied everything about love and affection that he was a man who, who embodied everything that was good and right and that he was the perfect example for people to follow. The truth is, in most cases, if you were to ask people about who Jesus is, the answer that you'd probably get would always be probably a positive one. You get a positive response about the identity. But friend, I want you to notice, it is important to note that a non-negative answer concerning Jesus does not mean it is the right answer. Let me say that again, a non-negative answer a non-negative opinion of Jesus does not mean that it is the right understanding of who Jesus is. It's not sufficient to have a simply a, a hazy, albeit positive opinion with regard to Jesus. On the contrary, it is crucial that you and I have an accurate and clear understanding and knowledge of who Jesus is. And it is also important that each one of us recognize and grapple with that question for ourselves. Consequently, in our text, Jesus moves the question from just talking about the general public to a very specific question of each in individual disciple. And the you in the verse becomes emphatic because he wants to know, but who do you say that I am? The emphasis on that question there makes it to something that the disciples have to look at the evidence that's been presented to them. They've been walking with Jesus. They've been talking with Him. They've heard everything that He's said and they've seen everything that He's done. And in light of all of the evidence that's been placed before them, Jesus asked the question, Who do you say that I am? I want you to know that same question is posed to each and every one of us this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is? I believe that this is the most important question that you will ever be asked. And the reason I believe that's the case is because Jesus is the most important man who ever lived. The Apostle Paul says this about Jesus in, first, excuse me, in Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, by him all things were created. Verse 17, he says, and in him all things hold together. So if Jesus is the one who created all things, and if in him all things hold together, then brothers and sisters, you need to know, if we truly want to understand anything about anything, we have to know who Jesus is. But the importance of that question really extends much farther than just that. Because 
What we know about Jesus and who we know Jesus to be really determines where our destiny is. Heaven and hell hang in the balance because the Bible says that the free gift of eternal life is only for those who know Jesus. So if we recognize the importance of that question, then we need to take particular interest in the answer that Peter gives because Peter steps up and what we know of him shouldn't surprise us that he's the one who decides to voice the answer for the disciples. And so he just steps to the forefront and says, well, you are the Christ. Now, the term Christ that, that Peter uses there in verse 29 is the equivalent of saying that Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, Peter is saying that Jesus was more than just a prophet. He was, he was more than just, just one who would fulfill a, a preparatory role. He was more than just a good man who taught good things and, and did good things for people. In fact, what Peter says unequivocally is that Jesus was the final prophet. He was the promised Christ. He was the son of the living God. In fact, that really brings us then to a good answer for that first question. It's the first point on your outline this morning. The first point just simply asks the question, who is Jesus? And the answer that we get is this. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the King of Kings. He is the Holy One sent by God. All of those names, all of those identifiers, what is meant by the term Christ? William Lane, in his commentary on this passage, says that Peter's confession is given in the simplest, most direct and moving form. But when we understand, that when we understand the word Christ against the Old Testament backdrop, of all the prophecies and the promises that are given concerning the Christ, concerning the Messiah, then we begin to realize that who's, in, who's involved in this understanding is that Jesus would be this ruler who would come in the line of the Davidic kingdom and that He would be the final ruler that would put all things in place. Not only would He be the King of kings, but He was the Holy One. He was the anointed of God who would come to fulfill a particular role and carry out a particular task. This is who the Messiah is. And this is who Jesus is. Was And it is who Peter came to know him to be. This is a critical moment in this narrative. Because as I said earlier, up to this point, no human being in the Gospel of Mark had come to this conclusion about Christ. None had stated so. Many of the demons had. You remember, when Jesus cast out those demons, many of them knew real quick who Jesus was. They, they had the understanding because they had, they had been with him prior to the creation of the world. They knew who Jesus was, but, but from a human perspective, it was still something that was cloudy. It was still something that was hazy. Here, there's a breakthrough moment. Peter correctly identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and we know that he was correctly identified because in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus immediately follows Peter's declaration by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. The flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, so Jesus commends Peter. He says, correct, you got the answer right. But then he comes on the backside, but don't, don't get all puffed up and filled with yourself because you didn't come on to that information by yourself. It was God who gave it to you. Otherwise, you would have never really understood. But even with that, we come to understand that the, Peter and the disciples still didn't fully understand who Jesus was. They still didn't get it. How do we know that? Well, the first clue is the simple fact that Jesus says, now you don't go tell anybody what, I, what you just learned. And that has, that has messed people up for centuries. Why? 
Why, if Jesus was the Messiah, why, if his disciples knew him to be the, be the Messiah, didn't he allow them to go out right then and tell everybody who he was? Well, the first clue that we get to understand here is that they still didn't recognize what kind of Messiah Jesus was going to be. They didn't recognize what it really meant to be the Christ. And Jesus didn't want them going out proclaiming him to be something that he was not, which is why we see in verse 31, Jesus begins to say that he warned them not to tell anyone about him. And so that leads me to the second point that we're going to see this morning. There's a second question. If Jesus is the Christ, that's good, but what kind of Christ, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? And based upon what Jesus tells us here, we learn this. He is the suffering servant who was rejected and crucified, yet raised from the dead. Listen to what he says again in verses 31 and 32. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke these words openly. In other words, Jesus didn't hide anything. He didn't conceal anything from his disciples. He was very honest and he told them completely everything that they needed to know. I like, I like how Tim Keller has paraphrased what Jesus says here. He paraphrases Jesus' words this way. He says, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the King. But I came not to live, but to die. I did not come to take power. I came to lose it. I did not come to rule. I came to serve. And that, Peter, that's how I'm going to defeat evil. And that's how I'm going to put everything right. Let me point out to you that Jesus didn't just say that the Son of Man would suffer. suffer. Notice it says that the Son of Man must suffer. That word must actually modifies and it controls that entire sentence. Everything that Jesus says will occur must occur out of necessity. Jesus had to suffer. He had to be rejected. He had to be killed. Why? Well, as one writer has put it, he spoke in these terms because from the foundation of the world, the Father had determined that the Son would suffer and be rejected and ultimately be killed to redeem His people from God's righteous wrath against sin. The punishment for sin before Almighty God was death. And if Jesus was to save His people from their sin, then it would be necessary for Him to make full payment for their sin. As Keller puts it, he says the word must is one of the most significant words in the story of the world, and it's a scary word. Why is it scary? Well, it's because Jesus said, I didn't just come to die. I came because I had to die. And what that means is, is that here, as we see throughout the rest of Scripture, sin is always linked to death. It always comes together. Sin always leads to death. And that's what makes it so scary. And that's what makes the must of that sentence so incredibly important. Because you understand then that if Jesus had not died, you and I must die. Friends, understand it is right here. It is right here that the gospel message just explodes from this text. It's right here that everything we sang about earlier comes right to the forefront of our mind. Because understand this, my sin and your sin demanded, it necessitated, 
it required there to be a sacrifice, but it had to be a, a perfect, holy sacrifice to satisfy the perfect and holy wrath of a righteous God. A sinner, a sinner like you and me, cannot die for our sins and satisfy God's wrath against our sins. You and I cannot die for someone else's sins. Why? Because we're sinners. And as sinners, we have justly, we have rightly incurred upon ourselves God's wrath. And God's wrath, when it is rightly given, results in death. And so if we were to die for ourselves, we would just be doing what was right and what was necessary. But Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One, sent by God, He lived a perfect, sinless, holy life. He had never earned the wrath of God. In fact, for all eternity, He had existed perfectly in harmony with the Father. He had lived in the eternal blessing of God the Father. Therefore, He and He alone could make atonement for our sins by offering Himself up as an offering for us. That's what it means when we say that He did something that none of us could do. By His death, He satisfied God's wrath. He paid the debt that we could never pay. That's why he had to die. That's why he had to be rejected. That's why he had to suffer. All of those things had to happen in order for us to be set free. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died for our sins, and he did so by losing. He achieved our forgiveness, and he secured our pardon, not by raising up an army, but by voluntarily allowing himself to be raised up on a cross and to be crucified in our place. Here's what I want you to know, though. It wasn't just that he must suffer, that he must be rejected, and that he must die, but it's also very clear that he must rise again. In fact, the end of that verse also has that in three days he'd be raised from the dead, and the must that controlled the first half of that sentence controls the last half as well. The same must tells us that Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead is also an absolute necessity. You see, if he just died but never rose again, you and I would have no hope of eternal life in ourselves. It only comes through the resurrection of Christ that anybody can have hope of eternal life. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul came to a conclusion in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, then, then my preaching is in vain, and your faith is futile, and we have no hope. Praise be to God, that must that controlled the first half of that sentence also controls the final half. And so Jesus did rise from the dead. He did conquer death, hell, and the grave. And because that's the case, the must is not only a scary word, it's a word that's filled with hope. It's a hope that builds everything in us for the fact that we know one day we too will rise. One day we too will live in the same victory that Jesus lives in. Now, it's right here, it's right here that we get the second clue that the disciples just didn't grasp what Jesus was saying. It's just like it's just bouncing right off their heads, like stuff that my wife says to me sometimes, just bounces right off my head, and I can't get it, and I can't grasp it, and I can't get my hands around it. That's exactly what's happening here. Because what I want you to notice is that Peter had confidently stated that Jesus is the Christ. He confidently declared him to be the Messiah, but it's the kind of Messiah that, G that he didn't understand. He didn't get it that he was the suffering servant. That he didn't get it that he was going to have to die on a criminal's cross. And so Peter takes Jesus aside and the disciple then rebukes the master. 
basically Jesus, what Peter says to him is, Jesus, you be quiet. What you say must not happen. This is not the way things must be. You see, for Peter, the concept of the Messiah, and really the concept of the Messiah in, in the light of all the Jews, was that he would come to be a king, yes. He would come to be a shepherd. He would come to be a redeemer. But the thought of him coming as a suffering servant was inconceivable, even though, even though the Old Testament had said that's how he would be. Notice, though, immediately after issuing his rebuke, Peter receives one in return. Jesus looks at him and says, Get behind me, Satan. This is, this is one of the greatest moves from being first in the class to being last in the class right here. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God but the things of men. Jesus was not saying that Peter was now inhabited by Satan. It's not what we should understand. What he was saying is that Peter was in his words proclaiming the same thing that Satan had tempted Jesus with back in the very beginning of his ministry. When he was out in the wilderness, tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, it was the words of Satan that came to him, tempting Jesus to, to get to glory without going through the cross. Basically, Satan said, if you'll just bow your knee to me and confess me as your Lord, then, then, then I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus looked at him and said, be gone, Satan. And when Peter, when Peter tells Jesus, look, you're, you don't know what you're talking about, about being a suffering servant. You don't know what you mean. This, this must not happen. Jesus recognized in Peter's words the same words, the same, the same understanding that had come from Satan himself. And so he says, be gone. Get behind me. He says, you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You see, the idea of a Messiah who would suffer and be rejected was completely out of sync with human reasoning. It still is today. The Apostle Paul writes it this way in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. He says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. What are those, what are those spiritual things? Well, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 tells you, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But then he goes on to say this, and this is where it gets good for you and I, but to the, us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So to recap what we've learned so far, based upon what he had seen and heard and based upon what God the Holy Spirit had given him witness, Peter correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And this was a major revelation. And it tells us that he and the disciples had finally recognized Jesus as the Christ of God. But their vision and their clarity of that was still not what it should have been. So Jesus immediately tells them what kind of Messiah he was to be. And what we come to understand from that is that the only Christ that Peter or anyone else can confess is a Christ who is both crucified and risen from the dead. Based upon Peter's response to Jesus' teaching, we realize that this was a very hard concept for him and the disciples to understand. Nevertheless, we do come to understand what that means because Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just tell us who, the G who Christ is. He doesn't just tell us the kind of Messiah that he is. He then goes on to give us the final answer. What does it mean for you and me? And that's what we begin learning there in verse 34. And that's the third point on your outline this morning. The third point is this. What difference does all of this make that we've discussed so far? 
Well, it tells us this. To gain eternal life and be freed from the death penalty of sin, you must confess that Jesus is the Christ and surrender yourself to it. Notice, notice that after Jesus rebuked Peter, Jesus utters some of the hardest words that we will ever read in all of Scripture. Beginning in verse 34, you will find that Jesus says, because he came to suffer, all who would be his followers would also suffer. Effectively, Jesus says this, look, here's what's going to happen to me. And if you want to follow me, you're going to have to travel the same path that I'm traveling. And you're going to have to follow me all the way to the cross. Let me read beginning in verse 34 one more time. He says, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I believe these words are among the most penetrating and thought-provoking thought-provoking words in the scriptures. They force us. They force us to reckon with what is most important to us. In that first century context, the phrase to pick up one's cross meant that any would-be followers of Jesus must be willing to bear the pain and the persecution that comes along with being his disciple. R.C. Sproul has, has paraphrased Jesus' comments in verse 34 this way. He says, if you want to follow me, do not expect an easy time. Do not expect to have all your hopes and wants and expectations met. You might as well take up a crossbeam and carry it with you every day because my disciples must be ready to endure humiliation, shame, and death. And if you want to be a Christian, you have to be willing to pick up that crossbeam and follow me. Those are tough words. Jesus', Jesus words speak of allegiance. They speak of obedience. They tell us that a cross-bearing disciple is the only kind of disciple that there is. He goes on to say in verse 35 that those who are willing to lose their lives are the ones who will save them. And I want you to know such a concept goes completely against everything that we are taught in our culture today. Our culture today says we need to pamper ourselves. We need to look out for number one. We need to try to save ourselves. But Jesus says the very act of an attempt to try to save your own life will end up in the destruction of your life. We cannot dodge the words of our Lord right here. But then, if that's not enough, he ups the ante even more in verses 36 and 37, asking two very penetrating questions. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Brothers and sisters, right here, we have a lesson in spiritual economics. Jesus is saying that we may profit to the point of owning the entire world and everything in it. But if gaining all of that happens to cost us our souls, then there really is no profit in it at all. Rather, what he's telling us is that we will have sacrificed that which is supremely valuable for that which is worthless by comparison. And friend, I want you to know if you make that choice, if you choose the things of this world over what Christ offers you, you will end up eternally bankrupt. You see, what Jesus does here basically is reach his hand down, put it underneath our chin, and lift our eyes so that we're gazing things in eternity, not the things that are around us that are constantly vying for our attention. 
It's not our houses, our homes, our vacations, our bank accounts, our health. It's none of those things that are the most important thing. The most important thing is what heaven offers us. And Jesus says, if you want to know that, you need to lift your gaze and look past the things of the present so that you can look to the things of the future. So what Jesus says here tells us that to truly confess Him means more than just simply knowing who Jesus is. It means more than just simply knowing what He came to do. A true confession of Christ means that His life in all of its suffering becomes the pattern for our life. In other words, as Philip Graham Ryken has written, the only Christ that anyone can confess is Christ crucified, and the only way to confess Him is to follow Him all the way to the cross. And thus Jesus says in verse 34, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then to really put the exclamation point on it, he tells us what he says in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Therefore, when we really consider that last question, what difference does it make? Well, in light of Jesus' words, we come to what I have put forth this morning as my sermon in a sentence. And I offer it to you this morning. My sermon in a sentence is this. Our hope for heaven depends upon our unashamed confession that Jesus is the crucified and resurrected Christ, which necessitates our commitment to follow him all the way to the cross. As I have stated, I believe that this is the pinnacle passage in Mark's gospel. I believe this is the Mount Everest that he has been pushing us toward this entire time. And I believe it is the clear, among the clearest statements in all of Scripture that tell us exactly who Jesus is, why He came, and the difference that He makes in our lives. Here's the question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you truly believe that He is the Christ? Do you believe that He is the Son of God, the Messiah, and that He willingly came to give His life to forgive you of your sins? Do you believe that he rose again from the dead in order that you might have eternal life? If you believe in him, is your confession of him accompanied by a commitment to follow him in obedience, to live a life that demonstrates your repentance, your turning from sin? Have you turned loose of all the things in this world that are so important to you in order that you may grasp onto Him? Because the Bible says that you cannot walk simultaneously holding hands with the world and holding hands with God at the same time. He demands, he demands for His disciples to turn loose of the things of this world that we might embrace Him in the fullness of His salvation. Are you a fully committed follower of Jesus all the way to the cross? Perhaps today is a pinnacle point in your life as you ponder these most important and sobering questions. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together.